This is Paradoxical, a podcast about the psychology behind big success in small business. I'm your host, Steve McCready, and today my guest is Jessica Matthews from Dancing Zebra Safari. Jessica, thanks for coming on the show. Good to talk to you. Great to talk with you, Steve. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about a number of things today, but let's start by just having you introduce yourself to everyone, who you are, what you do, and what Dancing Zebra Safari is about. Dancing Zebra Safari is a company that I started basically started researching in 2014 and then opened my doors in 2016. And we plan African wildlife safaris for people. We do more of the luxury and not the budget ones. And that's it. We, we just, we send people to different places in Africa to see the animals. I know for you, you were doing something very, very different before. So give us the background on that. Cause I mean, you used to be an attorney, correct? That is correct. Yes. I, I was educated as an attorney. My first career was a divorce attorney in Nevada. And I was doing that up until the time that I started my family. Then I was a full-time mom. And then I was ready to go back into doing divorce law, but as a mediator in California, when my family took a trip to Tanzania for a wedding, the purpose was not even to go on safari. It was for a cousin's wedding. And we decided we would do a safari while we were all the way over there. And I just absolutely fell in love with Serengeti. And I thought, this is what I want to do when I grow up. I don't want to... (laughs) I don't want to be divorcing people at the lowest moments of their lives. I want to try to do something that brings me back to Africa. And I had no idea what business I was going to do. I just knew I wanted something that would give me an excuse to go back there. I love that. And and I think uh, certainly as anybody who has um, been connected to family law knows that, that, especially even as within the realm of law, that's an area that can be particularly difficult and stressful and while very valuable for people who need it, not, not necessarily as much of a positive or upbeat thing as being able to take people on some really once in a lifetime type adventures, I would imagine. Yes. And, and selfishly, when I, you know, was thinking, what do I want to do? It, it was more just that the feeling that I got when I was in Serengeti was just this overwhelming feeling of peace and something that I never felt when I was doing my law practice. As much as I knew that I was doing a good thing, helping families transition to the next phase of their lives, but this place is magical and I I need this in my life. So I didn't even think of it initially as how can I bring this to other people? It was selfishly more about wanting it, you know, in my life. And then as it evolved and I decided that, hey, I know I'm going to, even though I've never been a travel agent, never had no training or anything with the research that I was able to do, I just decided that for me, that was going to be the way to make this happen was to be able to go back and research properties and, and then, you know, be the eyes and ears for clients so that they could go and not worry and have the experience that, that we had. Tell me a little bit about the process for you of getting from the place of like, okay, I want to do something that involves Africa and getting to the thing of saying, okay, I'm going to run safaris. You know, it was a couple of years and it was just kind of turning over stones. Like how should I invest in land cruisers and, and rent them out, lease them out, you know, and then I would have an excuse to come back and check on my land cruisers and see how everything's going. It was really like, I really had no clue what, what it was going to be. And I was just kind of looking at it from all different angles of what could be profitable. And again, the, the motivating factor in all of this was how can I get back here? Cause I'm, I'm a very practical person and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to say to my husband and kids, Hey guys, I'm going on vacation to Africa again this year. Like <laughs> that wasn't going to fly. So for me, well, I don't think it would have flown for them either, but I just had to have a business, you know, reason to go back. So it was doing a lot of informational interviews with owners of lodges, for example, 
in Serengeti and talking to safari guides and talking with the tour agencies. You know, the one that we ended up traveling with, I talked with their ground handlers in Tanzania a lot and just picked their brains. Like, how does this work? I was concerned about the liability of it, having been an attorney and thinking, oh my gosh, how do people do this and sleep at night? So I knew that what I had to do was find the most skilled people and the most reputable people that I could starting in Tanzania. And because that is, you know, where we went, but then branching out to other countries and, and kind of repeating the process of really getting to know people and word of mouth is big. You know, you start to hear reputations of where the best safari guides and, and then you kind of follow that lead. And I took a bunch of trips myself to experience different safari guides and stay in different properties and that kind of thing. And then I thought, okay, you know, once I did that and felt comfortable that I could be connected with the best teams, then I was like, okay, I feel comfortable. I'm going to do this. I would imagine the relationship aspect of things is really, really critical in this particular business just because of the nature of all the different one elements involved and and, and people involved in it. It is. And you find such, there's such a spectrum of how people in these countries run safaris and what they think is perfectly fine and safe is not necessarily what we as Westerners think is perfectly fine and safe. You know what I mean? And so there would be safari guides, for example, who would, who would say, oh yeah, just, you know, send your clients to me and I'll take them on safari. And it's like, well, you've got a nice land cruiser and you seem like a nice person, but you have to have a complete team and infrastructure because, you know, what if the land cruiser breaks down? Who's your backup? How far away are they? You know, what sort of support systems do you have in country to make sure that your clients are never stranded in the middle of Serengeti because, you know, you got a flat tire and you don't have a spare or your car broke, whatever it is, you know, because things you have to sort of plan for these eventualities. And so that was fun because I got to do the research in country and, you know, spent a lot of time in country. And it was also really, I mean, educational and humbling to realize the the difference between the best of the best and then the ones that, you know, they mean well, but it's not something that you could, as a person who has safety and security and liability in mind, it's not a road that, you know, I could go down. Do you think that your background in law with all the detail orientation and all the stuff that goes along with that is something that helped you in this kind of research and and getting things established process? A hundred percent. And I think that's why, you know, I, because sometimes people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you went to law school and, you know, practice law. And now you're doing this. Now you're just a, you know, travel agent or whatever. I mean, I'm not quote unquote, just a travel agent. But you know what I mean? People just say, how can you be educated in that and then do this? But the education, and I try to tell my kids this and young people, the education that you get, I feel like it's never wasted. It's just a process of getting you, you know, to wherever you end up going and, and you'll always take things with you that you learned. So it's the furthest thing from practicing law. And yet, Yes. Being able to start my own business because I am so detail oriented and I've gone through all the stress and the rigors of, you know, law school and, and the bar exam and running my own law practice. That is all stuff that made this possible for me. It's been such an education and so much fun because as a newcomer to the industry, I was able to see from a really broad angle sort of what things people were doing who had been in the industry for so long, what they were doing, and then what newer people were doing, and just had this completely different perspective because I wasn't enmeshed in the travel industry, you know, for all this time. And I had some people come to me and they're like, how did you know this when, you know, you haven't done it? Because there's so many advances with technology and the way that you know, tour operators are able to get their itineraries out to prospective clients 
just huge advances that people who've been in the industry forever, they get sort of stuck in their ways and they don't ever pay attention maybe to that. So that was nice for me to be able to see it all and then choose which things I thought were better for clients, a better experience. I think there's a, a couple of things here I want, I want to highlight just because I, I think they're really useful takeaways for folks listening who are thinking about this from a business standpoint is that one, you never know where your education or your skills are going to show up or be useful elsewhere because not necessarily the specific knowledge, like the, the you know, industry specific knowledge, but the skills that go with developing that knowledge or using that knowledge, like the detail orientation for you. That's, you know, that's a thing that comes into mind. But then also this thing of recognizing that sometimes your inexperience is actually an advantage because it allows you to have that sort of beginner's mind perspective or to see things in a different way, which allows you to not get stuck in these, these ruts and to be able to develop something that is maybe different, or at least that aligns with you and maybe offers something unique in the marketplace. So that's, that's exactly what I'm hearing here. And now for you as, so you spend this two years getting this all sorted out and prepped. Tell me about kind of the initial safari and how that came to pass where your clients came from for that and just what was that first actual like making this live and and doing it like it was kind of actually during the process if i'm yeah i'm thinking of one where i could say that that was my first quote unquote client and we had been talking about this because I didn't tell, I didn't share with anyone except my family and a couple close friends what I was thinking about doing because I I was concerned that <laughs> there's always naysayers or people who tell you all the reasons why it's a bad idea. And I tend to be influenced by that. And I, I really didn't want to be influenced by anybody's opinion of, of why this wasn't a good idea, which is good and bad. But it was my sorority sister and she and her family, she said, you know, we've always wanted to go on safari and it looks like you had such a wonderful time. And I hear you talking about it with such passion and this and that. So I basically thought about my family's trip and everything that I loved about it and things that I thought could have been a little bit different. And she just gave me the opportunity to sort of experiment with her and her family. And I went with them. I joined them with my son. So the fir my first, you know, actual clients, I actually met up with them. I didn't do the whole safari with them, but did about half of it and met them in the Serengeti. And so that, that was my first experience. You, your friends and your family tend to be your guinea pigs when you're starting new businesses that you're not, you know, trained in. So yeah. And they loved it and it went well. And I mean, everything went better than, than they imagined. So it gave me a little more confidence and then it kind of just went from there. Then I had my second one was another close friend and her husband. And I went with a new guest that I had met just talking about safaris and we went and did the chimpanzees in Mahali National Park in Southern Tanzania, which I had never done on our original trip. So that was a new experience for me too. So it was baby steps in the beginning of friends and and some new clients and, and it just took off from there. With each step that was a success. And when I just realized, yeah, hey, as long as I have all these pieces in place, you know, it doesn't mean everything's perfect. Sometimes the flight arrives two hours late, but if you have people there who have food for you, who, who can take you in their land, you're not just stuck out on an airstrip somewhere with lions circling, you know, you're going to be okay. But there, there are just so many logistics because it's not a typical holiday. That was one of the things I'm wondering about is, is like, it, it strikes me as just so many different moving parts. And I guess the question which you've started to answer here is how do you manage to keep them all aligned and or what do you do when they get misaligned for various reasons? How do you kind of get things sorted back on track? That's that is like the key. And I've always said for my company, you know, safety is is the key because obviously if if that breaks down and, and goes really wrong, then you're done. You know, you can't really recover from that if you let that ball drop. So my focal point has always been safety 
before anything. It's really about doing that front loading of making your connections and making sure that you can trust the people who are the ground handlers in the country, making sure that those people understand how important safety is above anything else. And it's one of those holidays, probably others around the world that I'm just not familiar with, but it's the only holiday I've been on and and that I tell my clients, you really can't be unaccompanied. It's not that you can't. Some people do it, but they do it at a great risk to, you know, themselves and their explorers and they're traversing across Africa, you know, on a bicycle or they're whatever, taking a bus and that's fine for individuals, but it's not fine for a company who wants to stay in business and keep everybody safe. So having the best teams on the ground is the key. And then you know that whatever comes up, you know, they're, they're established professionals. They've been in the industry for decades and they've seen when, like I said, vehicles break down or I had a situation this past year where something happened at at customs. So these really nice people, it was a a retirement trip for this accountant who was my client and her, all these firms got together and they all, you know, gave a bunch of money so that they could give her this wonderful African safari for her retirement. And these people had never been on the continent of Africa. You know, they had traveled a lot, but never been to Africa. So they come into the country. They say that everything went really smoothly at customs and immigration. And I was in contact with them checking in. How did everything, you know, you're good. And here they are in the middle of the Ngorogoro crater watching lions and everything's good. And I get a call from my ground team saying, hey, there's quite a problem the immigration authorities want your clients to present themselves back in Dar es Salaam, which is a city that most of my clients don't fly into. They fly into Kilimanjaro, but because these folks had done some volunteer work in Southern Africa, they they came in that way. And, and now they're up in the North. And I was like, what do you mean? They can't just, I mean, it's not like flights are readily available, you know, to just pop on a flight and it's like a five hour journey on a flight and with a stop and it would have completely disrupted their trip. So long story short is that these immigration officials thought that the husband was someone else who, because he had the same name as someone who had been in the country several years before and he had committed some crimes and needed to be in jail. And they were convinced that that was my client. And through an arduous process, we were able to avert them um, from having to be taken back to Dar es Salaam. But the authorities came out and took their passports. And it was pretty, pretty scary for a little bit. It was just a mistaken identity situation. But with the connections that my ground handlers had, you know, we were able to put it all back together, but it could have been an absolute disaster with this man ending up in jail. And that is the kind of thing that you just, it's the unknown. And when you're in these countries where they don't have the same, you know, rights or systems that we have in the U.S. or in the Western world in in general, it's just you really have to make sure that you've got people who know how to handle these situations. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like something that's that's super super important. Now, tell us some about the the different sorts of offerings that you have as far as the different adventure safaris and and whatnot. So the the main one, and I would say the the best start for anybody who's interested in doing an African wildlife safari, in my opinion, and just from the research that I've done and the places that I've visited, Serengeti National Park is just the pinnacle of a wildlife experience that it's truly wild. You know, there are no fences. It's so big. If you look at a map, Serengeti is just so vast. So there's so many different areas that you can explore that have different landscapes. You feel like you're in four different parks, depending on, you know, where you are in Serengeti. So I always recommend to people to get sort of the most bang for their buck is 
opening their mind and coming to Tanzania to to visit Serengeti. And then within that, you know, there are different categories of sort of luxury. If our lowest budget, you still have regular beds with bathrooms in your tents and things like that. You're not doing any kind of sleeping on mats on the ground or anything, but that is also available with other companies. You know, if you wanted to do a real rustic and and budget kind of trip. That's just not what we do. But then within that, the lodges and the camps that are available just have a broad range of whether there's a pool, whether there's a little massage room, is there just how the tents are set up and that kind of thing. And and to me, the, the most important thing, I think, beyond safety is your safari guide. Having safari guides who are, again, they they're safety conscious, but then they're also very well trained and educated about the wildlife so that they can take you and they can read the animal's behaviors so they can educate you while you're out there. Because it's really fun to learn all these different animals that you've never seen before and the way that they behave and the fact that these safari guides who have been with these animals, you know, for decades and they know their behaviors, they can tell you, oh, that second yawn, that means he's about to stand up. And then the lion stands up and you're just like, oh my God, how do you know this? (laughs) So that's a really fun part. Yeah. I would say going to Serengeti is just awesome for the big game. You know, people always talk about the big five, which is seeing the elephants, leopards, buffalo, rhino, and lions. That's the big five. And you can see all of that in Tanzania. And then some people will add on to that and do something like go gorilla trekking in Rwanda to see the mountain gorillas. Because so many of these animals are, their populations, you know, have just gone so down um, in the last even just 20, 30, 40 years. And there's a lot of conservation efforts underway to stop that trend. But if you look at the numbers of these animals, you know, from where they were to where they are now, it's staggering. And we don't know. There's no way to know if these animals are going to still be around when our kids are our age and they can travel. So it's kind of like having the opportunity to go see them while you still can, I think is is an amazing gift that you give yourself if you can afford it. Because it is, it's expensive. Although the flights going over from the U.S. to Africa are not nearly as expensive as I would as I would think. So that part is less expensive, but then because of all the logistics and the national park fees and the fact that you have to be guided by someone, so that means you have to have a vehicle and the fuel charging, you know, all those elements. It is an expensive adventure, but so worth it. So what what sort of cost are we talking about? And and how long are, are these typically? Is there a range there or how does that artwork? I if my clients are going all the way over there, you know, from the US, let's say, it's easier from Europe. I have some clients from Europe and you know, the distance to travel is half as far. But from the US, they you really can have an amazing trip, believe it or not, if you if you give me like eight nights minimum in country because some people just they don't have the time off so they're like we've got maybe a two-week time span and you've got a day on each end for traveling and then you know they need some time to get back recover from the jet lag so but the typical length of trip I would say is probably 10 nights in the country and then you you plan for a, a day of travel on each end but it doesn't have to, I mean, eight is, eight is okay. If you only had eight nights to be in the country, you can see so much and really get a good overview of what's there. I think that it can be too long for some people if you try to do three weeks on safari for your first safari, because people don't realize, I mean, people who are super, super animal crazy, then they could go for months and not ever be bored, but you do end up spending quite a bit of time in your land cruiser. And some people are like, oh my gosh, I just felt like I wanted to get out and go for a jog. And you can't really go for a jog in Serengeti. You're going to be a snack. So (laughs) 
<laughs> you have to, you know, you have to know your traveler and, and what they're capable of and kind of plan in some breaks. If they're super, super active, you've got to plan in some, some hikes and some nature walks and some time away from the national park. So you can work out in the gym or go for a jog in the town, things like that. So it's good to get to know, you know, your traveler and good for people to talk to people about what style they are for travelers. But there's also, I mean, there's so much to see and you can add beach time. If Even if you just went to Tanzania, for example, you can do all the big animals, the big five, and then you can go see the chimpanzees, which it's one of the last populations where you can actually trek chimpanzees and see them in their natural habitat. And then you can go over to the beach in Zanzibar and, and just, you know, go kite surfing or diving or snorkeling or paddleboarding, all those kind of things. And just, just within one country, but Africa has so much to offer and it's obviously such a huge continent. But the first question I always get, people are always asking me, is it safe? That's always the question. And then I'm, it's like, is it safe from humans or safe from animals? Like, what are you getting at? And it's usually people are more, believe it or not, it's more like humans, like terrorism. They think terrorism, because there's so much sensationalism, I think, in our media about Africa. People tend to think of it as just a country where, you know, whatever's going on in, you know, the Congo or whatever is what's happening in East Africa, you know, and it's just not, it's so different. There are super safe places to go where you you feel safer than you would in any, you know, American city. When you haven't been there and don't really quite have this, the scope of it as a, as a continent to really understand just one, how big it is and how much variety there is there. And it, as a result, I think, yeah, we can sometimes conflate one small data point with an entire region, which is in this case, particularly ridiculous and flawed. So it sounds like though, as it coming back to the, the adventures here is it, this is really a thing where one for even as little as eight days, one can really get a pretty comprehensive experience. It sounds like, but also it just is really comes down to what do you want to do? How much time and energy and money do you want to invest? And it really, it sounds like it is a thing. There's just a lot of different sorts of things you can do. And so it's kind of a building a a specific package of the different sorts of adventures or experiences within the the time that someone's able to commit. And I would imagine with within their budget, which I, again, would imagine the cost on these can probably range pretty broadly. Yeah. Depending on, you know, what time of year you go. I mean, you could do, I have people who for 20 23 have done safaris that are under $6,000 per person, all inclusive, not, well, not including your international airfare, which can run anywhere from like 1200 round trip to, you know, 6,000 round trip if you're doing business class. So there's a huge range there, but yeah, you can spend 6,000 for your safari or people who spend 30,000 for their safari per person. And it just depends. I mean, the factors are obviously how many nights you're there and whether you're going during their peak season when they have the highest prices. People will equate peak season with, oh, that's when you get to see the most animals. But that's not true either. It's supply and demand. So like in the summer, when they know that American families are traveling and European travelers and, you know, they know that they're going to fill their beds. So the prices are going to be higher, but it doesn't mean that you're going to see fewer animals if you go in November than if you go in, you know, August, because the animals live there. They don't, they don't (laughs) go away on holiday. You know what I mean? So it's kind of educating people that if they have the flexibility, if they're, if they don't have kids and they can travel anytime, you know, well, you might want to avoid that July, August, September, because that's when everybody has the time to travel or avoid Christmas time. And then you get better prices and fewer people and the animals, like I said, they're still there. Are there certain times of year where they're like, is this something that's basically a year round business is, or is it a thing that is, there's a period where you're really not doing these or how, how does that part of it work for you? It, you know, it is year round. There are a couple times of year where 
the rain season um, throws a curveball to where you could still go and see animals, but you have a greater chance of getting stuck in the mud in your land cruiser. And, you know, there are just more precautions that we need to take for you. And so those times of year, for example, April is a lot of the safari lodges and camps, they'll close down in April because that's when the heavy rains can come. It's so much less predictable these days because of what's going on with climate, you know, and just not being able to predict normal weather patterns. But typically like April in East Africa is the the start of the the long rain season. So not a lot of people go then. I've gone then and it's been incredible because there's hardly anybody out there. So if it's like your one time chance to go, you probably would want to avoid April just in case the rains, you know, decide to come. But otherwise, no, there's, there are things we kind of, at least in East Africa, we talk to people about, because they'll say they want to see the great migration. So then we have to have a conversation because for so many people who, for Westerners, they think of the great migration as just the iconic river crossing, like the National Geographic, where you see all the wild beasts crossing the river and then the crocodile snaps one up and takes it down. And, you know, that's what people think of as the great migration, but the great migration is actually, it's a continual movement of these animals and they're in different parts of Serengeti, different types of year. So different times of year. So if you wanted to see the calving season of the, of the great migration, instead of them crossing the river, we would send you down to the Southern Indutu area. And that would occur like January through mid-March. So when people say that, the Great Migration, you kind of have to narrow it down. And that's something that's been fun for me because since I focus solely on African safaris and within that, I focus primarily on East Africa. So I've come to really understand the, the migration and where the animals are because I've met colleagues during this period where they they sell travel all over the world and they've only been to East Africa maybe once or twice. And I just, for me, I feel like you can do such a better service for your clients if you have a focus, a specialty, like in any industry. Me, when I was in law, I was just a divorce attorney. My ex-husband was orthopedic surgeon and specialized in sports, you know, shoulders, things like that. So I think when people really go deep in a smaller area, they can give a better service to whoever their client is because they don't have to think about all these specifics, you know, of different areas. So I like that about what I do too. I feel like I'm giving my clients a lot of knowledge that I've gained over these years. I totally agree. And I think it's, I mean, there's obviously so much depth of what's there to do, to see, et cetera. It's not like one runs out of possibilities there, but you're right. I think it allows a level of detailed engagement and knowledge that really allows you to, to serve people more powerfully. Now, now for you with these adventures, like how many, how many a year would you say that you're connected to on average, if there is an average? I send about, I'm just going to look at 2023. The pandemic shook everything up. So it's all sort of different now. Like everything was moving in a, in an upward trajectory. And then the pandemic came, although I still sent quite a number of people in the pandemic. I think I had 40 groups in 2023. My last group just left and my groups ranged from a single traveler to a family of 16 in 2023. So 40 groups of different, you know, different number of people in each group and different style. It could be honeymooners. It could be multi-generational. could be single travelers, you know, couples. It's such an extraordinary adventure for, for everybody, really. It's our family's favorite holiday, multi-generational holiday. And any holiday actually that we've ever had, because even though it's like this incredible adventure, you don't have to be, because some people are like, oh, you know, I'm not that, uh, I've got a bad knee or I, 
you know, I've got a bad back, I can't do this, but you really don't have to do a lot of exertion. It's not like climbing Kilimanjaro or, you know, your team takes you very, you know, close to the wildlife. So you can see it right from your land cruiser. And then if it's far off, you have your binoculars. And so you get this incredible adventure, but you're also basically just being, you know, driven up to it to see it. You don't have to hike far distances. And so that's, that's nice that it can, that everybody can partake. Right. Yeah. It really sounds like just, again, the thing where there's, there is literally something for everyone, regardless of age, energy level, physical condition, et cetera. And now for you with, with these adventures, how does the, for you, the process of, you know, being in, involved in one, when, when someone's out there, how often do you go to Africa yourself? What happens as far as you being in contact with your teams or other people there? Like, how does the logistics piece work in the midst of all of these? So I personally go to Africa about three times a year is my average that I go. I, I ended up building a house in Tanzania during the pandemic, which I thought, okay, I'm going to end up spending, you know, half my, half the year in Tanzania and just coming back and forth. But with my, my daughters in college and my son moved to Hawaii. And so it's, it's not as easy as I thought it was going to be because of my heartstrings wanting to be closer to them. But for travelers, when my guests go, you know, I, check in with my teams and we go over the itinerary, make sure that we're all on the same page. And then I check in to make sure that they arrived safely. And then I'll check in a couple other times during the their trip. I, it's, it's kind of a fine line because you want people to really get away and not even be thinking about life back home. But then you also want them to know that that you're sort of stalking them behind the scenes to make sure that everything's okay. Right. <laughs> and, and just let them know that if for some reason anything wasn't meeting their expectations and they couldn't get their problem solved, that you're there to help. So it's a kind of the pendulum swings sometimes for me. And I, I hope I'm getting better balancing that, but I just try to check in with the people a couple times and then I'm, almost daily contact with my ground handlers to, and they're sending me photos like, okay, this is what your, you know, client saw today. And this is where Frank took them and they're sending me pictures back home. So, and, and by the way, everyone who's listening there, the, the Instagram is, is definitely a, a good follow because there's lots of, of fun pictures there and I'll definitely end up linking that in the, in the show notes. So it's, it's, it sounds kind of like you're just trying to be, you know, to be there and have there be awareness that you're there as a presence and if needed, and just kind of keeping an eye on things, but not trying to do so in a, in a disruptive way. But I'm, I'm thinking like disruption wise, Africa, I mean, East Africa is probably what, 14 hours ish off from us. So I can imagine this creates a little bit of schedule challenge for you at times. Yeah, I have strange hours. So East Africa is either 11 hours ahead of us or 10 hours, depending on daylight savings. So typically, if if I'm in Cal, well, and that's from me in California. So obviously, that changes if you're on the East Coast. But for me, if it's 10 o'clock at night, you know, my suppliers and ground handlers, they're getting into their office. It's eight or nine in the morning for them. So I'm usually checking in with them before I go to sleep just to make sure, you know, especially if I have clients in the country, like, okay, we're all good. It, but I, I do so much front loading, like I said, of, of things and going over itineraries many times before the people that I work with are just incredible with their logistics and their teams. But sometimes I do get the occasional call in the middle of the night that some, somebody's sick or somebody's this or that. But yeah, I'm just used to keeping strange hours now. <laughs> so it's just kind of one of those things for you. It's just kind of how that, how it works and, and how it is. But it also sounds like there's not really, it, it's a pretty light touch because of the upfront planning and logistics. So doesn't sound like it's, it's just a thing you've kind of learned to work with and around it. Just one of the quirks of your particular business. Yes. And, and it, it all really goes back to as long as you know, and you've nurtured these good relationships with, with just the best teams, um, then you sleep better at night and you know that if something does come up, they're going to, they're going to do everything they can to handle it first. And there's not a lot I can do from 
10,000 miles away, but but sometimes clients just like to know that you're engaged because people spend a lot of money and I just feel like it's my job to be as involved as I can if if anything goes, you know, sideways. But that's rare. Most times things just run really smoothly and even clients this week who just left actually. It's a it's a multifamily and the the matriarch and patriarch of the family, they were in Lahaina during the fire and they were stranded with their other 80-year-old friends at the seawall for like eight some odd hours. And we had already planned their safari, but when he got back from that trip and was telling me all about it, I thought he was going to cancel their safari because I thought, oh my gosh, he's been on this horribly just traumatic experience and doesn't want to travel anymore. That's where I thought the conversation was going. But he was just telling me how he valued their lives so much more and just saw how grateful they were, you know, to have survived that seeing cars exploding and all this crazy stuff. And I was like, well, we're, you know, we always take care of our clients and we're going to extra make sure that you guys are (laughs) super duper safe. But they had a lot of, they faced a lot of rain when they were there and I knew it. And I was like, darn, you know, because I just, it's not that it, again, the animals don't go away, but the rain can make things more challenging with mud and getting stuck or not being able to go as fast or it being colder, you know, or the animals kind of, hiding a little bit more, but they just had the absolute most remarkable life-changing experience. And they were sending me messages from the airport as they were leaving. So even when things, when the weather isn't always, you know, perfect, the graciousness of the African people, again, particularly in Tanzania, is just something to behold. And it's you just feel so welcomed there. And people always say to me, they're like, oh, well, everybody knows you at all these places. And so that's why they treat us so great. It helps that I have personal relationships with with my colleagues there, but that's really how they are. They love that you want to come and spend time in their country. And, and they appreciate how far Americans have to travel to get there. It's a long trek. So it, it's really how they are. It's not, a, it's not an act. And I think people come to realize that pretty quickly when they're there. Now, do you get customers who are like repeat customers who go on, on multiple trips? Or for most people, is this like a once in a lifetime thing or what? I would say maybe, yeah, probably like 60%. It's a once in a lifetime thing. And then there's a certain percent that it's, you know, maybe two or three Africa trips in their lifetime. And then you have some people, I have clients who in 2024, I think it will be their sixth trip with me or seventh, sixth or seventh trip with me. And they had done a trip before with a different company before they came to me. And so that's really cool when when people are that fired up about it and you get to send them to all sorts of different places and experiences or when they want to just, you know, keep going back to one place, but maybe staying in different properties or different areas. So there's the whole gamut. And for you at this point in time, where, where does most of your business come from? How do people uh, find you or hear about you? Most of my business nowadays is, is word of mouth from my existing clients. And then I do have, I have a referral source that's like a luxury travel. What they are is a company in the Bay Area where you go to them to find specialists in different areas. So if you want to go to Africa, if you want to go to Costa Rica, if you want to do this or do that, they have basically done their research in finding specialists for those areas. So then they'll refer their clients to those specialists and the specialists will then pay them like a commission if they book the trip that they've received a lead from them. So it's a whole different business model, but I think it's really cool too, because it does, we, there's so many people that you could go to so many travel companies and so much time you could spend researching online. So to be able to find specialists quickly, it's a nice thing for clients. And now going forward for you with your business, what's your, your vision for the future of, of what you want to do with business? You know, there's, there's so many, I think, things on the horizon with, with African safaris. One thing is electric vehicles like Land Cruisers that are diesel. 
But to be able to have land cruisers that are electric is something that some of the companies within Africa have been able to start doing that, which is so exciting to me because that would just be not having the noise from the land cruisers, not having the you know environmental impact, not only the the gas, but you know, when the land cruisers are driving on the ground, there's little dung beetles or whatever it is that the tires are squishing. And, you know, you try to stay on these little roads. This is going to sound crazy. I'm going to sound like a wackadoo, but I would love to see these little hover, <laughs> little hovercraft instead of having the tires be on the ground. But but electric vehicles in safaris is going to be really big. It's probably something, I don't know, I don't want to say too far down the line for me personally to be involved with, but uh, because there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to develop. But one thing that we're focusing on now is there's a, a company that you partner with them. They're a nonprofit and you partner with them to bring clean power into these villages and, and water supplies because they don't have them. So we're, for us, we're spending time now researching how we can impact small communities, just villages that literally they don't have electricity and they don't have a source of water. So we're, we're trying to find good partners there to focus on that. And then the business part of it for me, I mean, I, I'd love to grow, but I also like having less. I'm so particular with how I handle my clients that it's hard. I'm a little bit controlling and I, and I don't, it's hard for me to give up that standard to other people. I don't know how to say that without sounding like a complete control freak, but I kind of like just being able to be direct with my clients and handle that kind of stuff. So I don't know if I'm ever going to grow into a bigger. Well, I, I mean, what it sounds like to me is you just really, it's a matter of wanting to really make sure that you're involved, you're connected and that you're able to help make, you know, just, just ensure that things are handled and done a certain way. And I think there are those of us who like having a thing that's that's more small and, and you know straightforward, and manageable. So nothing nothing wrong with that. It's just a different way of doing business, and it still allows you to to help you know quite a few people each year have some some pretty amazing adventures. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And just that I think when people are coming into a business, if they, if they're not as familiar with it, I mean, I I would want every expert out there who's planning a safari for people. If I had my you know, if I could wave a magic wand, I would want all of them to spend the amount of time that I've spent in these countries, staying at properties. And that was just my investment. That was my personal investment. And it was driven a lot because I wanted to be there and I wanted to experience it. But it also really was me wanting to find the best for people and to really understand the markets. But I don't think that most people have the time or the luxury of spending that much money to explore all these places to to do that for their clients. But that would be ideal. And so I think because of that, when I'm talking with people, if I hand that over to someone else who doesn't have the same experience, not that there aren't those people, I just wouldn't be able to afford to hire those (laughs) people with all that experience. There's plenty of those people out there, but I'm just saying for people that I would hire, you know, they wouldn't have the personal experience of having been there and gone through these, because then when people ask me, well, how long does it take from to, to drive from this national park to this national park? Cause it looks really close on the map and it's like, no, 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 no. The roads are terrible. You can't use Google maps to figure out distances. You know, they'll say, we want to do all this and we want to go to Lake Victoria's part, you know, up by Tanzania. And then people think that that's Victoria falls. And it's like, nope, nope, nope. That's not, that's not what it is. So people can, can set themselves back a little bit if they do too much Google research about Africa. <laughs> so, I mean, really a space where the like the, the local knowledge piece is very, very important and, and valuable. And I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of merit in that for sure. So yeah, um, yeah. Really it cool. saves people time and, and headaches and even so much as knowing kind of which parts of a park have a lot of tsetse flies. Because tsetse flies, if you're in a in an area in a national park that has those, you are not happy. So I project my own experience, what I want for myself and my own level of comfort. And 
aversion to bugs, you know, when I'm planning for people. And I think that's just what anybody does in their business is if they wouldn't want to stay there or they wouldn't feel safe bringing their family there, they're not going to want to send their their clients there. I, I had a, a guest on a while back who is the CEO of a company that does adventures in and Yosemite and in that area and similar kind of thing. Like, I mean, everyone knows Yosemite and there's tons of information and stuff, but there's still things they know that no one else does, right? Or that are not broadly known. And it's it's really that detailed, specialized local knowledge. And I think people really have come to understand there's a certain value there because there's a depth there that you just can't get from Google or from the internet or for some, from someone who, you know, is a little bit of a jack of all trades sort of thing. And so it's actually something that I think adds extra value to, to what you're offering and a really good example of a place where a, you know, someone who does something that's essentially a travel agent sort of business really adds some value that I think people have maybe lost sight of it, that it's actually there. I totally agree. I think getting someone who either lives in the area and knows it, you know, really well from that perspective, or someone who's been a guide and doing those kind of tours. But yeah, I think Yosemite is a perfect example because even my family, we used to go every summer. And I can tell people like, yeah, Curry Village is great, but my God, don't go there in July or August. You will die. Like the line to get a pizza is an hour. And I can only imagine what people who really spend a lot of time in there and experience all the different months and the different seasons and what's available and what's not. So there's a huge value in having a specialist for travel. Absolutely. Now, for folks who want to learn more about you and your business, what's the best place for them to start, would you say? You know, my website, it needs some updating, but I would probably go there just to get some ideas of the kind of trips that we do. And then I think Instagram is is nice because it's so visual in showing what what our clients see. So it's just really a place to to get a true perspective of what you're going to see when you're out there. But then I love talking to people. So if, if somebody wants to call me, I don't get paid by the hour. And, and I just really love to explore if someone's interested in it. It's so I have such a passion for it that I love to just chat with people about what they can expect and different times of year and all of that kind of stuff. So that's fun for me. That's that's super fun for me. And I don't get you know, I'm not in an office with a bunch of people. So it's kind of my my work social time when I get to talk with my clients on the phone, because most of my clients I don't meet, you know, in person, it's through email referrals and, and phone calls. Great. Yeah. And I'll put, I'll put links to everything in the, in the show notes. And again, I'll definitely echo the, the Instagram is uh, worth following just because you really does give, this is the kind of business where something like Instagram is such a great medium because it really allows you to see and experience what's happening there in a way that otherwise you you wouldn't. And unlike some other businesses where there isn't so much of a visual element. So definitely I think Instagram's a, a great place to go. And it's good that you're leveraging that as far as helping people, you know, see see what these adventures are like. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for for coming on the show and for talking about what you're doing. It's certainly got me more curious about uh, making a trip to Africa at some point in my future. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I love I love uh, talking about it. It's a very special adventure. I hope everybody could go sometime. <laughs>